Hi, everybody, and welcome to Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today's date is Saturday, the 11th of November, 2023. My name is Maria F. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-host today is Dottie S. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, you can contact either myself or Dottie, and you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please also note that our speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A, which follows afterwards, we don't record that. So Harlan will speak for approximately an hour, then we'll do Q&A for about 30 minutes, and that will be hosted by Nancy J in Geneva. We do ask that you please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also if you're exercising, you're eating, or if you need to step away from the camera at all, please just do disconnect your camera while you're doing that. We'll post a link to the previous week's recording in the chat function and also to the seventh tradition. So we'll now go over to Harlan G in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, good morning to you, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. I'm not actually in Scottsdale, Arizona oh, today. Harlan. I am actually in uh, Arlington Heights, Illinois, and it is bone chilling here. It is 48 degrees. Holy mackerel, it's cold here. Uh, I'm used to 90, 95, and now I'm here in 48 degree temperatures. I was born and raised here, and it didn't phase me at that time at all. 48 was actually pretty pleasant, uh, but now 48 to me is like bone chilling. Uh, because I, I'm so you and you, when you get older, your skin thins out and you become a little less tolerant of it. But anyway, I'm here for other reasons than the weather. I'm not actually here to do outdoor activities. Uh, so that's fine. I'm, I'm surviving quite nicely. Uh, during the last couple of weeks, when we were in the chapter two employers, we spoke extensively about loss, denial, and ignorance. And we spoke extensively about what this disease took from us, what this disease cost us. And we talked about the pain of the loss. We talked about the torturous pain, the trauma of the lost decades and the lost opportunities and the lost things uh, that we had to leave behind in this disease. Today, we endeavor upon a vision for you, chapter 11. This was originally chapter 12, but as many of you know, the doctor's opinion after the first uh, edition of the big book was moved to the Roman numeral section. And when it was moved to the Roman numeral section, the book now had 11 chapters in the uh, Arabic numeral section, which is you know our section here. And one chapter, not one chapter, there's actually several chapters in the Roman numeral section. So now there's 11 chapters rather than 12. But I digress. What we're going to be talking about this morning are the good things, the miracles, the gains, the God-given beauty of this program. We're going to be talking about what God does when we walk to him. And when we walk to him, he runs to us. You heard me say that a million times. Well, this morning and for the next few weeks while we look at this chapter, we're going to be looking at a lot of history. 
We're going to be looking at some people who made this program what it is. We're going to be seeing some things in this chapter that are going to help us recover. What we're going to be seeing in this chapter, sorry, more than we see anything else, is the absolute splendor of, of God, his awesome, omnipotent power. We're going to see what that's about. So let's go to page 151, A Vision for You. And as you're getting to that page, the title of this chapter and the purpose of this chapter is to illustrate for you, the reader, you, the sufferer, the addict, is for you to understand what is in store for you as you move forward in your program of recovery. We look at this book often when we first get it, and we think that it's a way of losing weight, or we think it's a way of not binging anymore, or purging anymore, or, or uh, starving ourselves anymore. But it is none of those things. That's only the first half of the first step. This is a book on how to live your life. It's not a book about how to lose weight. It's a book on how to live your life. What am I going to do now? And as a book that is about how to live your life, what happens is miracles, pure miracles. It's Saturday today, Saturday, November 11th. My father passed away on this date in 1978. And uh, he had cancer. He was a smoker. Oh, was he a smoker, one after the other. I do not have a picture or a memory of dad where he's not smoking. I just don't have it. He smoked from the moment he got up till the moment he went to sleep. And he was a one after the other Chesterfield smoker. And he passed away. And I, as I look back on my life, because his death was just a few months before I came in here. And uh, he died in November of 1978. And I attended my first meeting on February the 2nd, 1979, at the Orchard Mental Health Center in Skokie, Illinois, on Gross Point Road. And that was a Friday night, miserable winter Friday night, icy, stormy, snowy, cold, just miserable winter night in Chicago. And if somebody could have said to me then that A, I would still be alive in 2023 and that I would be healthy and that I would be functional and that my finances would be in order and that I would have the experiences that I would have traveling the world bringing the big book to life as best I can, meeting the people that I've met and doing the things that I did, I never would have believed it because it is beyond my wildest dreams. Never in my imagination could I have dreamed that I could have had a life this good. Yes, you've heard me talk about the loss and you've heard me talk about all the horrible things that I left behind as the result of this disease. But oh, so long ago, I could never have imagined what my life is like today. I have a life that is full of recovery. I have a life where I have friends that are not in this room, these rooms. And I have many, many, many hundreds of friends who are in these rooms. I am a lucky man. I own my home. 
Uh, I mean, I don't, the bank owns it, but I, 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 I'm the owner of the house. I pay my bills. My mortgage is on time. My credit is excellent. My credit is very, very good. As a matter of fact, I don't pay mortgage insurance on my home because my credit is so good. In my wildest imagination, I could not have thought that because I had such bad credit that there were banks in Chicago that wouldn't have given me two fives for a 10 cash. If I gave them the 10 first, they wouldn't have done it. I have a life where I can get out of a chair. I can get in and out of a car. Just the other day, I went to the movies with someone that I'm involved with romantically. And I hadn't been able to go to the movies in decades because I couldn't fit in the seats. Never in my wildest imagination did I see the life that I have today. Never. I got on an airplane. I got off the airplane. I fit in the seat. I didn't need an extender belt. This is Saturday night, which means for me, I would have my threesome. Me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. Well, tonight, I don't plan on that. No little Debbie, no Sarah Lee, no food am I going to consume that I'm going to be ashamed to tell you tomorrow. I'm not going to do anything today and have not done anything yet so far today. I'm not planning on it. That is going to destroy my life. I have not done anything today. I've not said anything today to bring shame upon myself. I am not living in the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization of this disease. So with no further ado, let's go to page 151. And as I told you, we, uh, two employers and we agnostics are very difficult chapters for me to talk about. I never quite am sure what to say, but this is a chapter that I love talking about because it's the good news. You know, we have bad news and we have good news. Well, this is the good news. Page 151. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. Now, I'm going to say that everything in this book that he writes about alcoholism applies to me, except for the paragraph about eating chocolate. That doesn't really apply to me. But this is a paragraph that I can't really relate to. You see, I didn't have a lot of companionship or colorful imagination. I didn't sit around eating really good food to make myself as heavy as I was. Most of the food I ate was pure crap. Twinkies, ice cream, fudgicles, candy, chips ahoy, almond joy bars, things like that. That's all pure garbage. There's nothing really good about that. There's no conviviality, there's no real companionship, and there's no colorful imagination. I never sat around while I was eating M&Ms, with peanuts, of course, but I never sat around and ate M&Ms and dreamed great dreams of conquering the world. I never sat around the, um, I never sat around the uh, 7-Eleven on the corner of Devon and Albany and thought to myself, man, I really enjoy these Susie Q's. I really enjoy these hostess snowballs. And man, I'm going to take over the world one day. I never thought those things. I just shoveled them in my mouth 
And I did the best I could not to cry because I knew that I was killing myself and I didn't know how to stop killing myself. And then I transcended from wondering how I was gonna stop killing myself at about age eight, seven, to wanting to kill myself, wanting to die. I would say that if you asked me as a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old when I was on diet pills, what my life's ambition was, I would have told you I'd love to be dead very soon because I was defeated by this disease and only God could have made me the man I am today who is living in health and living a life that's worth living, living a life that's enviable in this program. I never knew how to want to live. I never knew how to want to want to recover or want to want to live. That was beyond my imagination. It means release from care, boredom, and worry. Dr. Silkworth tells me in the doctor's opinion on page XXV that most people drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And this effect is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot after a time tell the truth from the false. This effect is what I was looking for. And the M&Ms and the cookies and the cake and the candies and the pecan pies, pizza, they released me from care, boredom, and worry. They did not make it so that I had care, boredom, and worry. They made the world a very beautiful, groovy, wonderful place. And although I was lonely, and although I was dying, and although I was sad and jealous and angry and scared, candy could change my perception of reality. And it did so beautifully. And that's what I was seeking without knowing it. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good. I don't know about intimacy with friends, but I know about intimacy with Chips Ahoy cookies. And boy, we were intimate and a feeling that life is good. When I was a little kid, most of the friends of my father came out of the concentration camps in Europe. And they would grab my face as a child and kiss me and say, live until you die. I thought for a long time that live until you die meant that you accumulated black cow suckers, like a giant milk dud with a chocolate coating, and you accumulated Milky Way bars. I saw no point to Three Musketeers. Why would you buy a Three Musketeers when you, for the same nickel, you can get Milky Way and it's got the caramel on the top? Why would any sane person buy a Three Musketeers? I never understood that. Obviously, these were not Jewish people. But the bottom line is, is that I never bought Three Musketeers much at all. I bought Milky Ways. I was too smart to buy Three Musketeers, right? But life is good. But not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They were but memories. Never could we recapture the great moments of the past. I didn't have great moments of the past in the food. And this, again, is where drinking is a little different than eating. With most drinkers, they have a lot of good times associated with the very beginning of the roller coaster. 
once they get up to the top of the roller coaster and then start coming down, they don't have so many good times. But I think that with alcoholics, they do have some good times. But with eaters, I don't think I've heard too many people, uh, you know, talk about, oh, I ate here and I ate there. Uh, I don't I don't hear that. And I don't have those kind of stories. There was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did with a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure. No matter what I did in this world, no way was I going to stop eating. I was on diet pills from the time I was nine and 10, heavy amphetamines, heavy amphetamines prescribed by a doctor, and it still did not cure me. I didn't eat while I was under the effect of these amphetamines, but the minute they wore off, I was eating Illinois and most of Wisconsin, and it was just unbelievable. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself. This I relate to. I have been told from the time I was a little boy, three, four, five, six years old, that a fat boy is completely unacceptable in the world that we live in. I'll never have a good job. I'll never get a girlfriend. I'll never do this. I'll never do that. I'll never play on the team. It was horrible. And I found out that every single thing that these people said to me was correct. And until I got into recovery, I had no life. I was unacceptable to others. But here's what I didn't really understand. And this was probably the worst aspect of it. But it took me a good 20, 25 years of inventorying and fourth steps. I'm not talking about spot check 10 steps. No, I'm talking about full-blown columns of fourth steps that I was unacceptable to myself. And that was the biggest blow of all. And today, what I find is that I am acceptable to myself. I like me. I accept me for who I am. And when you don't accept yourself, when we don't accept your, ourselves, that is a very dangerous part. The self-loathing of this disease is one of the most horrible aspects of it. Because we keep lying to ourselves. We keep degradating ourselves. We keep insulting ourselves with food. And we keep vowing not to do this, this, or this. And yet there we are doing it again. And I believe that one of the things that I enjoy every single day when I walk, when I help others, when I do the things that are consistent with this program. It helps me every single day to see the good, to like myself, to begin to abate that self-loathing, that self-condemnation, that self-criticism, that self, the chatter of how bad I am. I got to tell you this little story. A long time, not a long time, but a ways before I got a cell phone, I moved to Eugene, Oregon. And my wife and I, at that time, my wife, we were driving in Eugene, Oregon, and we had only lived there a couple of days. 
we decided to go out to eat. We, we decided to go out to dinner. We went out to dinner in a city we'd never been in before. And there was no Google Maps. There was none of that stuff. And I got lost. And I started berating myself. And I started yelling at myself. And my wife took my hand and said, Harlan, if you spoke to your friends the way you speak to yourself, would you have any? And the answer is no. The answer is no. If I spoke to you the way I spoke to myself, if I spoke to you the way I thought in my head, you would run so far away from me that it wasn't even funny. So the self-loathing aspect is horrible. And the less society tolerated me, well, I, I hear that, but I didn't tolerate myself. And one of the things I have to remind myself of every day, and this came about as the result of wonderful sponsorship, wonderful guidance, and lots of ink getting burned on paper that got not burned in a fire, but I used a lot of ink and a lot of paper doing fourth steps. And I had to come to the conclusion that I hated myself. And when I don't do that, I have a much, much more peaceful and a much better life. I'm on page 151 in the middle. As we became subjects of King Alcohol, shivering denizens of his mad realm, the chilling vapor that is loneliness settled down. My mother used to say, without any knowledge of program, Harlan, you're a slave to food. You're a slave to the food. She was right. I didn't see it as a slavery, but I was. I did whatever the food told me to do. I was food's willing servant. I was food's bitch is exactly what I was. I was food's servant in every possible way that you can be. I lived my life at the behest of King Food. Not King Alcohol, but King Food. And when King Food said, no dates for you, when King Food said, you won't look like the other boys, when King Food said, go and eat a pizza, I did whatever the food told me to do, when it told me to do it, and I did it on food's terms. It thickened, ever becoming blacker. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. I don't think I ever sought out sordid places, but I sure ate a lot of garbage in my day, food that was really lousy. You know, at least if you're going to eat, eat something good. Eat something that's edible. Eat something that you'd be proud to put in your mouth. I was eating the cheapest, lousiest crap you could ever imagine. I mean, just fast food and food that gave me uh, food poisoning. And, you know, just I had dysentery and I had I had food poisoning a couple of times in my life and dysentery, at least eat something good. No, I was eating bottom of the barrel garbage. That's what I was eating. Momentarily, we did then would come oblivion, 
and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. Let's talk about those. I lived in constant terror. I couldn't make a decision. I didn't know which end was up. Now, some of that is maybe codependency. Some of that is maybe mental health issues. I don't know. Maybe some of that is something else. But I couldn't make a decision because I was so insecure, frighteningly insecure. So frighteningly scared of the world because of the abuse that I had had heaped on me because of my obese condition. That I lived in a constant state of terror. People have come up to me on the street that I did not know and laugh at me. People have come up to me and grabbed my stomach and slapped my ass that I did not even know. People have called me names that I did not even know. Children have laughed at me and adults have laughed at me and adults have encouraged others to laugh at me. And you know what the saddest part is? I thought I deserved it. I would say to myself, this is your fault anyway. And the only way I knew to kill the pain of more eating was to do more eating. The only way I knew to kill the pain of the embarrassment I felt at people laughing at me and pointing at me in public was to eat more food yet. That's the only way I knew to deal with it. I was a human spectacle and I knew at some level I had done this to myself. I had terror. Boy, did I have terror. Terror of the future and terror of the past. Terror because I didn't have the money to pay my rent. Terror because I couldn't cover my bills. Terror because I was born into a world that I did not really understand. Terror because I didn't want to live and yet I was alive. Terror because I knew that the world was going to abuse me, and it did. It absolutely did. This world took me out to the woodshed and gave me a beating like you wouldn't believe because of my weight. And I wondered thousands of times what neonatal crime had I committed that the world would treat me so horribly. I must be a horrible, horrible person. Bewilderment. Terror, bewilderment, confusion. Bewilderment is confusion. Bewilderment means I don't know which end is up. Frustration. I couldn't seem to fight my way into the world at the weights that I was at. And I did not understand how to stop. And I didn't know what was going on. Despair. I was a very negative person. I didn't finish things that I started. I didn't do the work. I have a, a very, very dear person in my life who had a teacher when they were in high school, geometry, geometry teacher. And this teacher told this person that if they keep working at it and keep working at it and keep working at it, they will understand geometry. And they did, and they got an A. To this day, this person is one of the most perseverant, conscientious, hardworking, and dedicated people that I know. I didn't know how to stick with anything. 
I just thought, and there's a story in the big book that illustrates that, that one day you woke up and maybe you could play the piano or one day you woke up and you were the quarterback of the Bears or one day you woke up and just knew how to be thin. I didn't know to work at things meant I had to work at things. I wanted a pass. I wanted to go through life the Chicago way. In other words, who do I pay? Who do I have to see? And then I can get around it. I remember in 1976, 1976, the year my mother died, maybe a month after my mother died, I got a ticket on Lakeshore Drive in the northbound lanes at Ohio Street coming home from a White Sox game. I was coming home from the White Sox. I was a vendor there. And I was coming home and I got a ticket doing 55 and a 45 zone. I said two things to myself that day. Number one, this is never going to happen to me again. And I've never received a traffic ticket since that day. That is the only traffic ticket I have ever received in my entire life. Never got another one after 1976. I've driven, I've driven to the moon and back, but I've never gotten another ticket. And I decided there's no way I'm not going to get this thing taken care of. So I went down and saw a friend and he connected me with another friend. And I gave that friend a hundred bucks, went up before the judge. And the judge says, how do you plead? I said, not guilty. He said, case dismissed. That's the Chicago way. I'm not proud of that necessarily, but that's what I did. And uh, I wanted to do that in OA. I wanted to get in good with the powers that be so I could social climb or politically climb the rungs of OA ladder. Doesn't work like that. I had to do the work. I didn't want to do the work. I had to do the work. And if I don't do the work, I don't get the results. We have a friend, all of us have a friend, not just me. We have a friend in South Jersey and um, I won't mention that her name is Kim. She wouldn't mind me mentioning that. She says, I'm very sorry you got no results from the work you did not do. What a catchy sentence that is. I'm very sorry that you did not get any results from the work that you did not do. So those are the four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. And it says, unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. I hear this often. I hear this often. I came here for the vanity and I stayed for the sanity. I hear this all the time. I hear this every day on Vision and in Scottsdale meetings and so on and so forth. I hear it. And uh, that's all well and good. I didn't even come here for that. I came here because I owed people money. And they threatened to put the squeeze on me unless I went to the meetings. And um, I had to come. But what happened by and by took a long time. I'm not going to tell you how long it took. I don't want to scare you. What happened eventually was I saw that beyond losing weight, the people that work this program, and I'm going to include myself in this now, 
the people that work this program, they have a good life. They're happy. They're more secure than I've ever been. They're more confident that God who began a great work in them will see it through. That God is here and all is well. I could go on and on and on and on, but here's what I know. I don't think it. I don't have to believe it. I know it in the core of my soul. I believe it with every fiber of my being that there is a God and that that God is looking out for me. He's looking out for you too. He doesn't, he doesn't play favorites. We're all his children. But he absolutely is interventional, but he has to be invitational. I have to invite him in. So I pray and I ask him to come into my life with my whole heart. I never wanted anything more than his will in my life. Knowledge of his will. Excuse me. I didn't mean to say his will. knowledge of his will. And I ask God for the power to carry that out. And when I have that, my life is good. My life is very, very good. Bottom of 151. Now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a Sally. We know our friend is like, a Sally is a foolish thing, a boondoggle. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. And that's how I was for a long time in this program. I would go to the meetings. I went to a Monday night meeting at Swedish Covenant. I went to a Tuesday meeting at Swedish Covenant. Wednesday, I went in Skokie. Saturday morning, I went in Evanston. That's where Howe started in the Chicago area. I don't know if you know any. I knew Fred Schneider. Just I knew Fred. Fred started the Howe program. I won't go into the whole thing with what's better, how, or who, or why, or what, or when. But he started the Howe program. He was a teacher, school teacher, Fred Schneider was. And he did what teachers do. He developed a curriculum for OA of readings and writings. I'm not judging it. Please don't ask me about it later. You can investigate this on your own. I don't know what's best for you. I don't. I'm just telling you. And uh, he wanted me desperately to come to the meeting. So I did. I, I went. He was in New York. But he, he you got to come to our meetings. You got to come. I want you in our meetings. So I did for a long time. But anyway, I digress. And then I went Sunday morning, Swedish Covenant Hospital, uh, big book. And that's where I got a lot of my exposure to the big book. We didn't have OA literature at that time. There were some pamphlets. Yes, there were pamphlets. But we didn't have OA literature, which is probably a good thing, which probably helped more than hurt. But uh, the bottom line is, is that he, uh, he, not he, it was, that's how it was. And I don't think I went to meetings on Saturday too much. And that was later I went to a Saturday. No, Saturday was how? That's right. Friday, I don't think I went. Friday was the one night I don't think I went. 
But anyway, that doesn't matter. I knew I wanted to get away with eating, and eventually I did because I wasn't recovered. I was on a diet. So what I'm using a lot of words, too many words to say is I treated it like a diet club. I was using unaided willpower to try to get down to a weight that was acceptable. And that doesn't work. If that worked, I wouldn't be in a way. It does not work. What I have to remember is this is not a program about losing weight. That's part of it, yes. No question for people like me, absolutely. It's a program of getting a spiritual awakening as the result, the result of these steps. The main purpose of this book is to fit ourselves to be, a, a, not, excuse me, the real, the main purpose of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. This is about having a relationship with God. And in that relationship, I don't find it necessary to compulsively overeat today. Maybe tomorrow I will. I don't know. Maybe tomorrow I'll order 10 pizzas. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. But what I can tell you is I have no desire to kill myself with food right now. I don't have that desire. Okay? I don't. Okay. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. I was not happy about my abstinence. It wasn't really abstinent. I was a dry drunk for a long time. In other words, I was dieting with group support. Dieting with group support means I'm using willpower not to eat. I'm going to the meetings. None of it is sinking in, and I'm not doing the work to gain a relationship with God. He cannot picture life without alcohol. I couldn't picture life with the food. I couldn't picture life without the food. I just couldn't picture it. Someday he will be unable to, manage, to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. I don't even think about the excess food today. It means nothing to me. It's garbage. It's, 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 it's just pure garbage. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. When I'm in the feud, food, feud, food, when I'm in the food, I know loneliness such as few do because I don't want to be with people. I don't want to be around people. I can't be around people. I do not want to be with anyone. Even sex is the furthest thing from my mind. I could not imagine being intimate with a person when I'm in the food. I just don't want anybody to see me naked. or to, I, just, I, I just don't. You can't even imagine, if you're not a compulsive overeater, you cannot even imagine what that's like. If you are a compulsive overeater, then you know that well. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. I couldn't take the pain anymore. I just could not take the pain and I wanted sweet relief in the form of death. I just couldn't take it anymore. I had been beat down. I was beaten like a rented mule. And I did not know how. I thought I was a good person. There were vestiges of me that thought I was a good person. But the world was telling me, yes, but. Yes, when. 
You are a good person, but you're too fat. You are will be a good person when you lose weight. This is the signal that the world sent to me. And I believed it. And I believed that it was my own fault. Page 152. We have shown how we got out from under. First full paragraph. You say, yes, I am willing. But am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum? Like some righteous people I see. I know I must get along without liquor, but how can I have you a sufficient substitute? I didn't even know that there would be a substitute for the bliss of a pizza. I didn't know that there would be a substitute for the absolute euphoria of a gallon of chocolate Rocky Road. I didn't know that there would be a substitute for what I was killing myself with, which was crappy, lousy food. Crappy, lousy food. Yes, there is a substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Look at that. All I ate over was the care, the boredom, the worry. And here I find some way to live where I will be released from care, boredom, and worry. In other words, God is giving me that effect that Dr. Silkworth describes. He's giving it to me through the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And I don't have to go to Chips Ahoy or Kit Kats to get it. God is doing for me what the food once did for me with none of the devastating death-defying side effects. Doctors don't scream at me anymore. You know, the three fears of a fat boy. Going to the doctor, seeing a girl that you like, knowing she's not going to like you back, and buying clothes. Those are the three fears of a fat boy. The doctor, girls, clothes. Because when they start coming at you with a tape measure, your blood, if you're a, if you're a fat boy, your blood runs cold. You don't, you, there's nowhere to hide. And they're going to start with, I don't think we have anything that can fit you. I don't know how we're going to fit you. I don't know where you're going to go to get, you know. When, so the three fears, again, if you're a fat boy, doctor, they're going to scream at you. They're going to, yeah, they're going to tear you a new one. Girls and buying clothes. Those are the three fears of the fat boy. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. How is that to come about, you ask? Where am I to find these people? You are going to meet these new friends in your own community. Near you, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds, high and low, rich and poor. There are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will, they are, these are future fellows, sorry, of Alcoholics Anonymous, not they. These are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. Stop right there for just a minute. I am very blessed. Very, very blessed. I 
am 69 years old. I have everyday contact, every week contact, every month contact with, with people that I started Green Grammar School with in September of 1959. I have friends here in Chicago and in Arizona that I have known since September 7, 1959. There are pictures in the in Green School, now Green School is not a public school anymore, but I went there K through six. There's a back playground just for kindergarten, and then there's the playground for the other one through six. There's a there's pictures of the kids on the first day of school. Now, some of the kids we cannot identify. We don't know who they are because they moved away or you know they stayed a very short. We just don't, nobody seems to know who the hell they are. Some people have theories as to who they might be, but we really don't know for sure. I can identify and they can identify me on that first day of school. And we are still friends today. Still friends today. I trust them with my life. They trust me. We love each other. The friends that I have made in here speak and understand the language of the heart. What a gift I have been given to have that mix of friends. And <clears throat> I am very lucky that there are men and women in my life today that I can talk to. I can pick up a phone. I can go on email. I can text. I can tell this person the most intimate feeling, the most intimate fear, anger, jealousy, resentment, whatever that may be. And they understand because they speak and understand the language of the heart. It is the symphony of the soul. And only we speak it. And you have to earn your right to understand it and speak it through the work of the steps. Even people who are just auditing the class of OA, when I say auditing the class, they're sitting in meetings for decades. They've never gone home and worked a step. They're larger than they were 20 years ago when I met them, 30 years ago when I met them. They're not doing this program. They're auditing the class. And some of them are at retreats and some of them are at conventions. They're just auditing the class. You got to work this. You got to do it. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. That's what it's for. But those friends are more precious to me than gold. Very, very precious. The person that I'm here in Chicago to visit, among other people that I see, of course, that I love too, but the person is, um, you know, someone who speaks and understands this language. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties for you will escape disaster together and you will commence shoulder to shoulder, top of 153, your common journey. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. 
you will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. I couldn't love anyone. I thought I could. I thought I did. I had crushes on girls. I never could act on that because I was a fat boy. But I had crushes on girls and thought I loved them. Never went on a date with them, but you know, thought I loved them. I can love somebody today because I am secure in the relationship that I have both with myself and God. And if you're not there yet, then it's impossible to describe to people that love can only, if you're me, exist in an atmosphere of recovery. Love cannot really exist in this disease for me. It just can't. I think it's love. Love has many guises and many disguises. But the love that I think I feel is a very selfish feeling. I want this person because they're attractive. I want this person because they can do something for me or whatever that might be. But real love comes as the person is recovering and re in recovery. Because I believe that in the food, this is what I believe, please don't assail me with this in questions and answers. I can't prove it. I don't believe real love comes in the disease. I just don't believe that it can. Yes, we love our children, whether we're eating or not. Yes, we love our parents and we love our siblings and we love our friends. Yes, that. but when you're not in the food, then you can understand where real love is. And that's where I am today. You can't get there by fixing that ticket. You can't get there with shortcuts. You can only get there through the working of the steps, to the bone, working of the steps, every day, working the steps, every day, teaching the steps, every day, praying, every day, gratitude. So the thing we think is love is a hostage situation. We're looking to be validated in most cases, validated because we have somebody with us. But true love for me only came as the result of recovery. I married my wife in 1992. I came into the program in 79. And I was in recovery when I got married, but then I relapsed and now I'm in beautiful recovery. I thought I loved my wife, but I did not. I did not. She gave me a membership card to the human race. She was a wife. She was a female. She made me look like a normal guy that had a wife. That's not love. That's using her to get a membership card to the human race. I used her to look normal. I used her to appear normal. That's not love. That's not love. I provided for her. I looked out for her. I didn't abuse her. I didn't cheat on her. I, I didn't say things deliberately to to hurt her or do things to hurt her but that's not love 
And now that I'm in recovery, the tremendous difference. The tremendous difference. So, love comes for me in recovery. It cannot come when I'm in the food. Because when I'm in the food, I am a shark. I am an eating machine. All I care about is, are you going to co-sign my weight gain? Are you going to co-sign what you know you're seeing me doing, eating corn dogs, eating chocolate, eating French fries, and not say anything? Or are you going to get in my face? And if you're going to get in my face, I want you gone from my life. Gone. I do not want you in my life. I want you gone. And I will separate from you in any way that I can. Now, this next paragraph is very, very important. Because this next paragraph is a beautiful promise, the likes of which you'll never get anywhere else. Let's discover it together. It may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respected, and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure they will come. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. There are a lot of people on the line this morning, a hundred and some of you, 140, 150 of you, whatever it is. Why in the world are you here? It's mind-blowing to me sometimes. All I was was an eating, morbidly obese person. And yet, because of this program, you think that you are going to tune into this Zoom meeting and hear something you think might help you, or a podcast that you think might help you. That's mind-blowing to me. That's God using my pain to help another person. And in so doing, it elevates the quality of my life, both here and in the afterworld. My podcast will outlive me. They will be around when I'm long gone. That blows my mind. Blows my mind. I have had people come up to me in every corner of this country and tell me, you saved my life. I didn't save anyone's life. But something I might have said in a recording, or maybe I did a retreat in their neck of the woods, and something I might have said helped them. Well, I got news for you. Every one of you, you saved my life. You saved my life. Your words save my life. We're going to pick this up next Saturday on 153. Our hope is when this chip of a book, but this promise, this paragraph is one of the most rich promises, one of the most pregnant promises you will ever, ever see that the 
crap storm, the shit storm that is your addiction can help someone else. No matter who you are, you have something to teach us, something to say. Whether you came in when you were 24 like me or teenager, or you came in when you were 55 or 80, you have something to say, something that is of great value. Use it and God will bless you. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. We come from the Oxford group, a group of people practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. And we come from altruism, altruism, giving of one's self with no thought of a return. But let me tell you something that's a secret. The return is very, very good. The work is hard, but the pay is magnificent. And the benefits, I don't even have enough time to tell you how much I enjoy the benefits of working this program. My kingdom for a pen, I don't have one, but that's okay. But the bottom line is, yeah, uh, so I know where I'm at next week. So thank you. So the bottom line is, we're going to turn this over to Maria for Q&A. But before I do, before I do, um, what I would like to remind you of is, if you asked a question last week, please step back, step back, and let people who didn't ask one come to the surface, come to the forefront. 